0: All right, good morning, everyone. You can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. We will be in the book of Romans most of our time today. And we'll be looking at some verses that are actually very close to some verses that we looked at two weeks ago. So when you get to Romans, we're just going to go ahead and start by reading this passage. Find verse 9, verse 9 of Romans 5, and we're just going to read through verse 11. through whom we have now received reconciliation. One of the most uh, common definitions of a Christian that you've probably heard before is simply someone who has a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who has a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Um, Sometimes I'll just shorten it to someone who knows Christ. When I talk about when I came to know the Lord, I will sometimes just say when I came to know Christ when I came to know Christ. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 17, verse 3, when he was praying for his disciples there. uh, He said, and this is eternal life, talking to God, the Father. He said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So yes, the relational definition of Christianity as knowing Christ is a really, really good one. To, to be saved is to know Jesus. Now, like some of the other elements of our salvation, some of the other elements of the gospel that we've talked about the last few weeks, this one can also sometimes be misunderstood or even separated from the gospel message and made to stand on its own. I will sometimes be talking with someone, maybe in a membership interview or a baptism interview where I'm going to marry two people together and I'll ask them about their testimony, and someone will describe... Um, what they their testimony will consist of times that they felt really far from the lord like when maybe they were living in some sort of obvious sin and then they'll talk about other times that they felt closer to god uh, like when they were praying more when they were reading the bible more when they were going to church more when they started listening to christian radio whatever it might be there's times when i feel far from god times when i feel close to god and that's kind of how my life has been now what is missing from that testimony of course is any mention of of the basis of this relationship. How in the world can any sinful person like you or me ever have a relationship with the holy God? That's the question. And we're going to talk about that today. But let me remind you this, that that even though that relationship with God talk is sometimes misused, and there are people that really don't know Christ that talk about knowing him all the time, yet, even even though it's it's trivialized like that, even though it might be divorced from the rest of, of the gospel message, We dare not downplay it. The relationship angle of the gospel is critical for us to understand. There is no salvation, there is no salvation apart from a real, vital relationship with God. And this morning, I want to look at that angle of the gospel. You can call it the relationship angle. And this is a huge topic. We could spend many weeks on it, and so in some ways we're just going to scratch the surface. But this is a very rich topic for us to talk about. And as we do it, what I want you to do this morning is be thinking about your own relationship with God. Do you have a relationship with God? On what is it based? What does it consist of? How do you know you have a relationship with God? What what would it take maybe for that relationship with God to become a more important part of your life? When do you feel close to God? When do you maybe feel not so close to God? And is there anything you can do about it? Is it possible that maybe you even don't understand this all that way? Maybe you've got some misunderstandings about God's character, about this relationship, about what Christ has done for you, that maybe keep you from appreciating and partaking of this relationship the way that you should. Uh, now, talking about these things today is going to require that we talk about a word, a big word that you see many times here, here in Romans 5, 9 through 11. You probably notice that it's the word reconciliation. Reconciliation, that is a big $64, six-syllable word, reconciliation. But it's one that we, I think we understand pretty well. Even though it's a long word, it's a common one, and, and we're very familiar with it. Now, there are different ways to think about reconciliation, and the word is used in a lot of different areas. But for our purposes today, let me start by giving you this basic definition, which you'll probably agree with. Reconciliation is the process of putting a broken relationship back together. Reconciliation is the process of putting a broken relationship back together, and that is something that we are no strangers to in our everyday experience because relationships are a huge part of our life and broken relationships are unfortunately a fact of life for all of us at some point along the line sometimes it's just a minor thing in a relationship where there's a small offense Someone makes an unwise choice of words, there's a misunderstanding, or something makes us feel uneasy around a person that we didn't used to feel uneasy around, and it brings tension into that relationship, and it's, it's hard to talk freely with that person um, because maybe you're not sure exactly where you stand all the time. So sometimes it's just like that. Sometimes, though, it's something major, something big, something that results in a huge blow-up and... There's been real pain, and and this even threatens to end the relationship altogether. Or maybe you've been in a relationship where somebody has just cut off communication completely. These things cause us a lot of emotional pain because we need relationships with other people in order to survive. That's just the way that God made us. And if the relationship that is broken is an important one, if it's your spouse, or if it's another family member, or if it's a really close friend even, and that, that is a situation that affects us deeply at the heart level. We all know the pain of broken relationships, and now fortu- fortunately, many of us also know the joy that comes when a relationship is restored, put back together, right? An understanding is reached, or forgiveness happens, and trust is reestablished, and you clear the air, and the relationship is reconciled. That's a very joyful thing. Now, If the broken relationship is with God, then that's an even bigger problem. Because God made us, first and foremost, for a relationship with him. Our relationship with God is the source of our very life. It says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. Jesus said to know him is life. To know him is everlasting life. It's eternal life. And so to not know God, to not have a relationship with God, to be separated from him, is eternal death. It's spiritual death. In fact, that's probably the best definition you could give anyone of hell. A permanent lack of relationship with God being cut off from his presence forever. The Bible tells us that every human being, every human being having fallen into sin, starts out with a broken relationship with God. We all need to be reconciled to him to have that relationship put back together in order to be saved. And today I want to be very basic, and I just want to cover really two points with you this morning. First, I want to talk about the essence of our reconciliation with God. By that I mean what, it, what what does it mean, basically? What is the nature of it? And then after that we'll spend a few minutes talking about the extent of our reconciliation with God, meaning how far does it go? How how deep down does it reach? So the first the essence of our reconciliation with God, and then the extent of it. Now, when it comes to the essence, the basic meaning of reconciliation, what we're really facing with God is a two-sided problem. It's a two-sided problem. Um, several years ago, we had to replace the, um, the automatic uh, garage door opener in our garage. And as I was installing the new one, I discovered that this garage door opener had a feature that the old one did not have. They call it a feature. I call it a pain in the neck. Um, but it's <laughs> Some of you have seen this. It's a safety feature, and your garage door, if it's a new one, probably has this. There's, there's, um, there's a wire into the motor, and there's a little plastic box, when, and there's an element in there that emits a little beam of infrared light. And on, on, There's another little plastic box that's hooked on there, and what that has in it is an infrared sensor. And You put one of these boxes on one side of the door, one of the boxes on the other side of the door, and... If you do it properly and if these two elements are pointing exactly at one another so that that beam is hitting that sensor, then the garage door will close. But you also know that if anything gets in the way, you or your car or your cat or a leaf uh, or, or whatever, then that door will refuse to close. But even before that, the first requirement with this is that those two elements be exactly lined up and pointing toward one another. If they are, a little red light on the sensor turns on. But if even one of them turns just a little bit in the wrong direction, then the circuit is broken, the door doesn't operate, and the whole thing is useless. Why did you even buy a garage door opener? Okay, similarly, okay, for you, for you to be in right relationship with God, both you and God need to be facing in the right direction which is toward one another or there is no relationship there is no spiritual life but initially both of you are facing in the wrong direction you and god why because of your sin because of my sin that's the case for everyone You see, on on our side of things, it's pretty easy to see from our side of things because from our side of things, our sin, which kind of consumes us and runs our lives, our sin has us looking anywhere but to God when it comes to living our life. We are oriented toward living for ourselves, finding our meaning, finding our fulfillment, even finding our identity in other things, in the wrong places. Maybe it's in wealth, maybe it's in status, maybe it's in pleasure, maybe we look to just fulfilling our appetites, maybe we look to other people. But we're not facing God when it comes to meeting those most basic of human needs and putting him in first place. Now, maybe that's easy for us to understand. And we don't think very often about the other side of things, which is that God is not looking at us either. He can't. Why not? Same problem, our sin. Our sinful hearts and lives are offensive to God. God is perfectly holy, and so he is disgusted and repelled by our sin. And his natural response to our sin is found right there in Romans 5, 9, at the end of that verse there. What is it? It's wrath. It's a holy and righteous anger toward our sin. This is God's orientation toward us in our sin. It's right there in verse 10. We are his enemies. Think about that for a second. When we're living in sin, as we all naturally are, We are actually declaring war on God, and so God has no choice but to look on us as his enemies. And that is very, very bad news. Because you don't want to be God's enemy. But here's the good news. God has a very complex relationship with his enemies. Yes, he's repelled by our sin, but he's also drawn to us. Not because of any particular wonderful thing in us, but because of his love. His love constrains him. His love for us moves Him to call us back to Himself. And in fact, that love even moved Him to give up the life of His only begotten Son to pay for our sin, to settle that account, so that it would be possible to have the reconciliation take place. Verse 10 again, we were reconciled to God, how? By the death of His Son, it says. Jesus, in taking all of our sin upon himself on the cross, made it possible for God to look upon us again with favor and not with disgust. And so now from God's side, from God's side, because of what Jesus has done, from God's side, the problem is now removed. He can now turn toward us and offer us peace. And so what's the remaining problem? In the immortal words of Taylor Swift, hello, it's me, I'm the problem, right? God is now free to point in the right direction at me, but I'm not pointing at the right direction at Him. Our sensors are not pointing in the right direction to detect the infrared beam of God's love and forgiveness, and so the circuit is still broken. So what's the solution? The solution is called repentance. Repentance, and repent, the word repentance means to turn. To turn It means turning away from your sin, turning away from your self-reliance, turning away from those idols in your life that we talked about, the things that you've been putting in place of God, and then turning to God. And you know, repentance, that's not a happy word for most people today, right? Repent. I think that word really gets a bum rap and I think Satan wants us to be allergic to the word repent because we think of, you know, some hellfire preachers of repent, the end is near, repent, you've got to repent, like it's a, a harsh command. Let me tell you something. The call to repent is not a harsh command. It is a compassionate invitation. It is a tender invitation. It's the voice of a loving heartbroken God speaking us, speaking to us in the words of Isaiah 44:22 which simply says this, return to me for I have redeemed you. Return to me for I have redeemed you. It's an invitation and the Bible says it's also a gift. Repentance is a gift God gives us. How does He do that? He gives us a sense of the futility of chasing after all these other things. And then He starts to warm up our hearts to long for that restored relationship with Him. And although we start off probably assuming that if we are going to return to God, it's going to involve some long, painful, horrible, laborious process, when we actually turn to God, what do we find out? We find out that He's already removed all the obstacles. That we don't need to do time. We don't need to pay a fine. We don't need to write a 10-page apology to prove our regret to God. We just need to come to him, and he is ready to receive us. He's ready to reconcile. What keeps us from receiving that gift of repentance that brings life? Maybe it's our pride. It's okay, God, I've got this. Maybe it's the sense that coming back to God, if we do that, will result in in some changes in my life that I'm not really all that comfortable with. That's what it is for some people. Maybe it's just the inability to believe that, that God really loves you to the point that he would make that kind of a sacrifice. Maybe it seems like the whole thing is just too simple and too good to be true. I'm here to tell you, it's not. God is saying, return to me, for I have redeemed you. That's his desire. That's his heart. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants you to do more than anything. That you would return to him and to know the life-giving experience of being actively loved by God and then loving him in return. And this is really possible because of what Jesus did for you on that cross. That's the essence of reconciliation. But let's take it a step further now. The essence of reconciliation, the basic meaning of it is really getting God and us pointing at the right, in the right direction, pointing at each other, rightly oriented so that we can be friends instead of enemies. But let's look for a few minutes at the extent of reconciliation, meaning how far does it go? How deep does it go? How broad is it? And and then what difference does that make to us, maybe those of us who are already following Jesus and need to learn more about what reconciliation means for our lives? There's a passage in Colossians that also talks about reconciliation through Christ. Um, you can turn there if you want. It's Colossians chapter 1 and uh, verses uh, 19 and 20. There, it, Paul is talking about Jesus, and he's been talking about who Jesus is. And starting in verse 19 though, here's what Paul says about Christ. He says, "...in him, in Jesus all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or heaven making peace by the blood of his cross all things whether on earth or heaven what does that mean this is very cosmic language isn't it this is not this is this is a big thing this is really talking about god in jesus reconciling Everything to himself, right? Reconciling reconciling all creation to himself. And the Greek word that is used here for reconciliation is related, but it's a little bit different than the one that we see in Romans. It's actually a stronger word. It's got an extra prefix on the front of it that emphasizes the fullness or the completeness of this reconciliation. So what Paul is saying here is that one day, the entire universe, everything, will exist in perfect peace, perfect shalom. Everything will be set right. One way to think about the extent of reconciliation is to realize that it applies not just to individual people, but to all of creation. Everything will be put right. Now, if you think about the 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 original, most literal meaning of the word reconciliation, both in English and in Greek, it's in the world of accounting. It's where you know what what, uh, accountants and bookkeepers deal with when they reconcile accounts. So, when you reconcile your accounts. I hope you do that from time to time, folks. But at the end of that process, everything is supposed to line up and to agree perfectly. And if you're a bookkeeper, like my wife, if those financial books are off, if they're unreconciled by even a dollar at the end of the process, you're not really at the end of the process, right? Because you are not at peace and you cannot sleep at night until every penny is accounted for. That's what this word is getting at in Colossians. One day, every penny in the universe will be accounted for no more injustice no more conflict no more interpersonal tension no more war no more poverty no more crime no more conflict between people and nature no more environmental problems or natural disasters no more pain no more death no more sin nothing out of place everything as it should be counted and balanced down to the last penny Everything lined up and pointing in the right direction. Complete and perfect peace from one end of creation to the other. That is what Jesus is ultimately going for, folks. That is the final form of the kingdom of God. That's what it means. Now you see why Paul would use such an emphatic form of the word reconcile to describe what Jesus is doing here. This is total, complete reconciliation that leaves nothing out. Ah, But then look two verses later. Let's go to verses 21 and 22, Colossians 1. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is talking now about how God reconciles formerly godless people to himself. This verse is more specifically about you and me. And guess what word Paul uses here for reconcile? The same one. The intense one. Complete and total reconciliation. Perfect peace. And I want you to notice also that it's in the past tense. We already have it. We already have this condition of peace through the cross of Christ. Now what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us and how does it make a difference in our relationship with God? Well, first of all, You might agree with me. Uh, I I don't think we're very good at reconciling. I don't think we know what we're doing sometimes. Not, Not when it comes to relationships with other people. We try, and sometimes we do, but when we reconcile, when we put our broken relationships back together, a lot of the time, we still have some reservations, don't we? Right? We still have some things that are outstanding, and we can't quite rest at peace. There's a passage in 2 Samuel, where David, King David, is estranged from his son Absalom because of some truly horrible things that have happened in their family. But eventually, after some time, David finds that he can forgive Absalom, and the Bible tells us that David's heart longs to go to his son. But he doesn't. He doesn't do it. Why not? Why not? Is it because, he'll, as the king, he's going to worry what people will think about if he forgives him? Is it because he doesn't know how Absalom will respond? Scripture doesn't really say. But I think we can all relate to that kind of partial reconciliation, right? Sometimes we forgive, we accept one another after some offense or some disagreement, but in the back of our minds, there's still these questions, right? Can I really trust this person not to do what he did before? Can we really talk as freely and openly as as we used to about things? Or is there still some sort of maybe lingering fear or awkwardness in our relationship? Has this person really forgiven me for what I did to him to mess up the relationship? Or or am I still on some kind of probation? Are things really as good as new? Can they ever be? Can we really forgive and forget? Because sometimes that's not so easy. Let me assure you of something, brothers and sisters. God's reconciliation Is not like that. It is complete. It is total. It covers everything. God is not held back from running to you by these wounds or fears or insecurities that we've talked about because he doesn't have that. All of that stuff was dealt with on the cross. If you are God's child, if you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, God is not halfway reconciled to you or even 99% reconciled to you. He is totally reconciled to you. He is for you. He wants to be with you. He has no reservations about committing his whole self to you in relationship. And if you sin against him and you turn back to him, you will find him ready to forgive and even to forget, which is what we have so much trouble doing. In Christ, we are fully accepted we are fully forgiven we are fully welcomed back into god's presence and fellowship now there's a famous passage in ephesians 6 which most of you know about it It talks about the armor of god and if you're familiar with it you know we have like the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit and all that stuff there is one part of the armor of god that says that we are to have our feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace And, you know, I used to think that that verse was all about sharing the gospel and offering it to people who don't know Jesus. But the more I study the verse in context, the more I'm convinced it's really talking about something else. Because the word readiness, especially in the context of battle like that, can mean sure-footedness. Sure-footedness. Satan would like nothing better than to knock you off your feet. Satan would like nothing better than for you to live a life of anxiety, always wondering what's going on, always shuffling your feet around with worry, always being tripped up by every little fear, always wondering where the next blow is coming from and if God is really for you or not because you've forgotten about the peace that you have with God through Christ in the gospel, total peace with God that cannot be taken away by any trial or conflict that you would ever go through. If you are in Christ, then you and God are at peace. Period. Now, that being said, there is a passage in the New Testament that talks about bringing that message of peace to people who don't know Jesus. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's a passage that I almost used as my text for the sermon but decided against it. But this is where Paul says that in Christ, in Christ, he says God was reconciling the world to himself. All the people of the world, and now that we have been reconciled to God, we get to be His ambassadors. He says, announcing to the world that peace is now available. And we, as we share the gospel, this is what evangelism is: we're telling people, "You can lay down your arms. You can. It's safe to come out of hiding." Jesus, the one who knew no sin, has become sin for you, taking all of that burden upon himself, so now you are free to be reconciled to God and have a relationship with him. That's the message. And one aspect of this total reconciliation thing is that today, you know what, you go out and share the gospel with someone today, one of the things they'll say is this, "You Christians, all you care about is winning people's souls." You know, all you care about is getting a scalp and getting conversion. What, what about all the injustice in the world? What about all the poverty? What about all the racism? What about all the environmental damage? What about all that stuff? You just care about, you know, getting people to call themselves Christians. Well, you say, you know what? Now that you mention it, yeah. That's part of what Jesus wants to do. He's not just on a mission to save individual souls. He's on a mission to put everything right, didn't you hear? Including all the things that you just mentioned there. Which if you think about it is why Christians have to be concerned about those issues as well because it's all part of God's cosmic and complete plan of redemption for all of creation. Just one more thought before we close. This comes from the end or maybe the middle of verse 10 where Paul says, how much more? He says it twice. How much more? It says much more in the ESV. I like the NIV better there because he says, how much more? He's emphatic about it. How much, how much more being saved from God's wrath by Jesus' death when we were enemies, how much more will we now be saved by his life? A couple weeks ago we looked at verse 8. And we looked about at how Jesus died for us, not after we had repented, not after we had made some move in his direction, but he died for us before we did any of that. He died for us when we were still sinners. We weren't even looking, and he died for us. We were still at enmity with God, and Jesus died for us. You know those movies, those like action movies you might see sometime, And it's kind of unrealistic, but there's a big shootout going on or something like that, and all of a sudden two guys will end up pointing guns right at one another, and nobody fires. And one guy's like, all right, at the count of three, we're going to put our guns down, right? One, two, and what usually happens? Nothing. They just sit there pointing the guns at each other still, right? Because nobody can trust anybody. Guess what? When you and God were in that standoff, God didn't wait for you. He didn't even count to three. He dropped his gun. Not only that, But then he took all the bullets in his own body through Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, if God will do that, if God will love like that, if God will take that kind of initiative, if God will take that kind of risk, even dying for us while we were still his enemies, if he'll do that, well then, now that we're friends, and Jesus is living for us, now there must be no limit to how much He can show us His love. As our living Savior continues to pour out His love on us and as His life becomes more and more part of our own life, as we grow in God's grace, this reconciliation takes on a whole new dimension. Paul says in verse 11, it leads to unfathomable joy. You know, ultimately, I got so tired of having to deal with that infrared safety system in our garage That I finally took the emitter and the sensor and I jammed them up against one another and I duct taped them together and I stapled the whole thing to the ledge above the door of the garage. So now the door closes no matter what's in the way. I figured our cat is fast enough that he can deal with this, you know. And our cat is no longer with us, but it's not because of the garage door. But, um, you know, in some ways, that is a picture of the ultimate reconciliation, right? God isn't just satisfied with pointing in the right direction. That's not enough for him. He wants to bring us in close. So nothing can possibly get in the way of our relationship with him. That's what he wants. The Christian life is not just a, a process of doing a series of good works. It is that. We talked about that last week. But it is also a process of growing closer and closer to God. And if you haven't figured it out by now, you can talk to some of the senior saints in this church that have been walking with God for many, many years, and they will tell you. I was talking to an older lady in our congregation just the other day, and she's going through some very difficult things. But one thing she said was, Pastor, one thing that's happening is, I'm praying a lot more now. And it wasn't just out of desperation, it was in deepening trust and intimacy with God. Just ask some of these folks that have been around for a while following Jesus. They will tell you it is not always a smooth process, and it is rarely a painless process but it is a joyful process ultimately. Every challenge you face, every conflict you encounter, every painful or confusing trial that you go through is part of this mysterious journey toward the heart of God. Jesus, I'm sorry, James. James has a verse that I think we look at from the wrong angle sometimes. It says this, draw near to God, and you probably know the rest of it, and he will draw near. To you. And I think because we know James and he's kind of a harsh guy and because we know the context, you know, we think of it as just a condition. You know, James is like, you bums! If you want God to get close to you, get close to him first. Right? As if we somehow have to prompt God to act. Well, the truth is that verse isn't just a condition. I hope you noticed, but it's also a promise. It's also a promise. God is ready to draw near To you. He is waiting with open arms to receive you, to forgive you, to teach you, to comfort you, to walk with you through every situation in life. Jesus has already cleared the way. So, what is keeping you right now from drawing near to God? Let's pray.